I've been posing a hypothetical question to, you know, civic-minded people, legislators, librarians, teachers, and so forth. I love a good hypothetical. If all of New England suddenly dissolved the borders between states and then redrew them, would we keep them where they are today? For instance, Salem, New Hampshire, on the border with Massachusetts. Does that town more strongly identify with New Hampshire or Mass? If Salem could pick which states it aligned itself with, it would prefer to pick the state of New Hampshire. This is Daryl Abbas. He represents Salem in the New Hampshire House. He grew up in Salem, but he has family in Massachusetts, like his grandmother. She loves it. She's been there her whole life. She won't leave. Does that make you feel like you, because you have a connection to her, you also have, like, a connection to Massachusetts in that way? Well, I mean, keep in mind, I grew up in Salem on the border, so I feel like I have a connection. I work in Massachusetts, so I go there quite frequently. I have an office there, so I, I do have a connection there, whether it's professionally or per- personally. Well, you know, my father-in-law lives in Massachusetts, so I guess I have a deep-rooted connection to Mass, Massachusetts, but... I'm always going to be a New Hampshire guy. That's the one thing that I'll never get out of my system. Or, for instance, Portsmouth on the border with Maine. Here's Steve Butzel from the public library there. Do you think the people of Portsmouth would want to be part of Maine or New Hampshire? (laughs) That's an interesting question. And I have no idea because it would so depend on who you speak to. Portsmouth, he said, feels like New Hampshire, but it also shares a regional identity with the towns across the river in Maine. Some people from York and Kittery might disagree, and some people who've been in Portsmouth for a long time might disagree, but I think, relatively speaking, um, yeah, the communities are interconnected. A librarian in West Lebanon, Sean Fleming, took a similar view towards Vermont. This part of town is probably more tied to the White River in Hartford than it is to Lebanon. And so that was one comment that was made when we built this building, that this was going to serve residents of both communities, and we see people from Hartford all the time. I think there's a a feel in the Upper Valley that the two sides are more similar than they are dissimilar, and I don't know that that was always true. On the one hand, borders are these precise legal entities. On the other hand, they're just imaginary lines. Hello and welcome to Civics 101 at New Hampshire. I'm Ben Henry. On today's episode, the story of why New Hampshire is the shape that it is today, and the people who made it that way, and how the shape of voting districts inside the state affects our local government. So we're talking like more than 200-year-old maps. Um, I'm very in 1802, the New Hampshire legislature decided to map every town in the state. For some towns, this was the first time that anyone sat down with a pencil and a big sheet of paper and drew the town line. People had such good handwriting back then. Yeah, so this is just a hand-drawn map of, looks like Amherst, Salisbury. They've got like the shape of rivers and lakes and, would these, you think these are roads? You have thin lines for the town roads, darker lines for rivers, dotted lines for trails. Large portions of these maps are blank, presumably where there was forest or farmland. Here's a drawing of a church. This little kind of grid here, I guess I shouldn't touch these. Well, you can touch them, it's fine. Okay. And later, these town maps were compiled into the first big definitive map of the whole state of New Hampshire. Today, all the original town maps are stored in the State Archives building, where the state records manager, Justin Ober, pulled them out for me. 
They're bound in these huge, sturdy, flat yeah. books like that here. look a little worn down from 200 years of use. Most the most detailed information is not actually in the maps per se. It's more of the written documentation from the surveyors. So like here's the corner where Hooksa, Dunbarton, and Bo kind of meets. There's probably a tree right there that yeah. somebody put a mark in and said, okay, from this tree, and then you go in a certain direction, in a straight line, and that's the boundary. Yeah. That's pretty much it. When European colonists created towns, they described the boundaries of those towns using landmarks, sometimes just a big rock in the woods or a post in the ground. There's a law designed to keep those markers in good shape. Every seven years, someone from each town is supposed to physically walk the town boundary. It's called perambulation. A lot of towns don't do this, but some people really love this New England tradition. The majority of these town boundaries are pretty much the same shape that they were back in 1802. These shapes determine where you take your kid to school, where your taxes go, who your state senator is. And especially for people in towns whose boundary is also a state boundary, these imaginary lines help answer the question, where are you from? When did you become interested in the New Hampshire border as like a subject to study? Well, all of New Hampshire history is fascinating, but a lot of New Hampshire's history relates to these border disputes. And they've been ongoing since really since the 1620s when uh, Europeans first started coming to New Hampshire to settle it. This is Trisha Peon. She's a historian and the program manager at New Hampshire Humanities. For as long as New Hampshire has been New Hampshire, we have argued about where the state actually is. And New Hampshire's border disputes have actually continued into the 21st century. So if you look at that as a theme in New Hampshire history, it's pretty interesting because it's been a continuing problem. Do you think we have had more kind of border disputes than than the average U.S. state? I think, I think New Hampshire is a little strange in that regard okay. and not having settled borders. The kind of funny thing is, is that the English, who settled most of you know what is now New Hampshire and a lot of New England, uh, they were concerned with boundaries and borders even before they ever set foot here. So they were drawing these maps up uh, without ever having seen what New England really looked like, just based on verbal descriptions. These earliest attempts to map out New England were not really for the benefit of people who lived here, particularly not native people who lived here for centuries prior. It was for the benefit of British aristocrats looking to make money from timber or fishing, or some of them thought they would find gold here, or a faster route to Asia. So for New England especially, it's wealthy men of influence in London, people who are well-connected, aristocrats, people who serve in various councils. They are often dividing up land and giving out land grants to, to people, to their family members or to other people, uh, sight unseen. So they might say you get, they knew where the Merrimack River was and they didn't know where it ended. <laughs> so they just said like, basically that is all your land. Oh, okay. So the river is yeah. the boundary, but they didn't actually know the course of the river. So that causes disputes for like a hundred years. Wow. And they're so concerned about finding um, a passage to the east. So not realizing that there's a giant North American continent and really hoping that, you know, just the other side of the Connecticut River or just the other side of the Great Lakes, there's going to be Asia. 
so that that doesn't get dispelled for a couple centuries. So, <laughs> so they were doing all this map making with the hope that it was going to be over soon. Right. That they would just get to the end of the Which continent. is where the good stuff is. That's where the wealth and the riches and the spices are going to be. That was yeah. the hope. It's that desire for wealth and for land that's driving this map making. So it's really the boundaries have a lot to do with empire building and, and uh, that whole history of, of Europe. One reason that we have spent hundreds of years arguing about New Hampshire's borders is that map making is really hard, especially if you're doing it by hand. How was it done at the time? It would mostly be visual. You know, you'd pick a tree and you'd make your mark on a tree and this is the boundary tree. You know, it's weird to think about how they would have had those vantage points. You know, if you think about sailing in on a ship, you would see a very different, almost aerial view, but not quite, uh, of a coastline. So coastline maps are fairly accurate and could be in the 17th century. But when they got into the interior, it is it would be pretty tricky. Yeah. Do we have copies of those first maps and are they, yes, are they just wildly wrong? I could show you some wrong? really funny 16th century English maps of what, you know, North America looked like or what they assumed it would look like. In the early days, New Hampshire was mostly a coastal community, Dover, Exeter, Portsmouth. As we expanded inland all throughout the 1600s and into the mid-1700s, we fought over territory with our neighbor to the south. At one point, Massachusetts claimed everything up to Lake Winnipesaukee. Massachusetts and New Hampshire fight about it um, for almost 100 years. Then in the 1730s, London decides that a commission should be formed to study it and decide where the boundary really is. And that's why like our, our southeastern border is all kind of wiggly and weird there, and we only have our tiny few miles of coastline, uh, is because the border that they settled on is the Merrimack River, but three miles north of it. So Massachusetts gets to keep the Merrimack River, the squiggly part, and three miles north of that, and then New Hampshire starts. And then they just drew a line from the lowest, so the southern bend of the Merrimack River, where it's at its, like, most southerly point, which is about where Lowell is, and then they take that southern point and they just draw a line due west. The decision made by this commission was pretty favorable to New Hampshire. We could have had a much smaller state, but once we had a border, we wanted to have our own government too. It's exactly at that same time when the after the commission decides to settle this border that the government in London decides that New Hampshire should have their own royal governor. And so 1741, Benning Wentworth becomes New Hampshire's first royal governor. So prior to 17, 1740s, uh, New Hampshire was governed by the same governor as Massachusetts. Our next border dispute came to the West in an area that New Hampshire and New York tried to claim in the 1700s. Today, of course, that region is now Vermont. The Vermont towns decide they want to form their own state. So the people in Vermont felt like they had more in common with each other than with New Hampshire necessarily. Because remember, New Hampshire's government is happening in Portsmouth and Exeter. A condition of them joining the Union, though, is that they settle their boundary disputes with their neighbors. So a bunch of the New Hampshire towns, like Hanover, for example, wanted to be part of Vermont. But the Connecticut River is obviously the most convenient boundary to have because it's big and it's obvious. Um, but if towns to the east of the river want to be part of Vermont, that's going to be a problem. So that fight continued. Uh, George Washington actually had to write a letter to Vermont and say, it's 1782, the war is still on. Can you not squabble about this right now? It's kind of a big deal. If you were trying to create borders today, 
we wouldn't necessarily use rivers. You know, we would probably try to be more precise about things. So you have to wonder if New England, you know, dissolved all of our borders right now, just hypothetically, and had to redesign them. You know, would people in Portsmouth decide they wanted to be part of Maine? <laughs> you know, uh, would people in, in Nashua and along the southern border want to be part of Massachusetts? Yet another border dispute took place to the north when the United States and Canada could not agree on where precisely the Connecticut River ends. A small patch of the North Country was up for grabs, and while our two countries argued about it, the people who lived there came up with a different solution. They declared themselves to be their own independent country. They wrote their own constitution and called themselves the Republic of Indian Stream. After two years, the Republic dissolved. Today, that area is Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, but they still didn't settle on the boundary for a few more years. It wasn't until 1842 uh, in the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. So an international treaty had to be made to settle that, that boundary. And that's how all of that is settled where it is today. So that's 1842 is that our boundary with Canada is, is there is permanent. In case you are wondering, yes, we have also argued with Maine about the maritime border. This is the one that follows the Piscataqua River. That border was disputed until the U.S. Supreme Court settled it in 2001. So oh, no if you kidding. can imagine, that's nearly 400 years of a, of a boundary dispute. You know, New Hampshire is a bit odd in its litigiousness uh, and concern for its borders. So that's because, mostly because of the, the shipyard. So it's called the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, and Portsmouth wanted it very much so to be part of New Hampshire. Yeah. It's on an island, and it's in the Piscataqua River. So the dispute with between New Hampshire and Maine is because, is it the middle of the river? Where is the boundary? So in 2001, after much litigation, the Supreme Court just told us where to draw the boundary. And finally, after all these years, New Hampshire has a stable, agreed-upon boundary. Those are the state borders. But inside those borders, we have town borders county borders, school districts, voting districts. If you like maps, you should check out the districts you live in. You'll find some bizarre shapes. All of those shapes, though, tend to follow town boundaries. So, for example, the districts for the House of Representatives. We've got this huge house, 400 people, and each of them represents a single legislative district, which might be a group of five towns or just one town, depending on the population. Larger cities like Nashua and Manchester contain multiple districts, we have districts for each state senator, for the executive councilors, two districts for the U.S. House of Representatives, and the whole state is one big district shared by our two U.S. senators. The shape of these voting districts can change. Every 10 years, the federal government conducts a census, a recount of who lives where in the country. And afterward, the New Hampshire legislature gets to redraw their districts. It's called redistricting. We're actually about to do this in 2020. And right now, legislators are getting ready. There's a bill in the Senate that would take some of this power out of the hands of legislators themselves and put it into the hands of an independent citizen commission. Yeah, so we, we help draft the policy. I'm Yuri Verdansky, and I'm redistricting counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice. Yuri is a lawyer. The Brennan Center is a progressive think tank that advocates against gerrymandering, which is when politicians draw their districts in a way that gives them an unfair advantage. The last time New Hampshire redrew its districts was in 2010. Before 2010, 
Uh, and the story really starts um, in many ways in 2008, big Democratic wave sweeps the country, puts Obama in the White House, and it set uh, Republican strategists uh, thinking about how are they going to regain political power. And one of the ways uh, that they decided to do this was to target specific states. And New Hampshire was one of the states that was targeted by Republican strategists to draw districts in ways that would help Republicans uh, gain control of the legislature. This plan, broadly speaking, worked great for conservatives. In 2010, Republicans gained seats in Congress and in state legislatures across the country, including in New Hampshire. And that meant they had the majority they needed to control New Hampshire's redistricting. Some people thought that the way the maps were drawn were deficient, specifically around how certain towns and other municipalities were being split up. And they filed a challenge with the court and it was a number of different cases, but they were ultimately combined into one. And the court essentially said, we don't want to get involved with this. But now Democrats hold a majority in the New Hampshire House and Senate. They want to pass a law that would change who is in charge of redistricting in New Hampshire. Yeah, so House Bill 706 would put redistricting into the hands of 15 citizen commissioners, five Democrats, five Republicans, and five unaffiliated voters. And they would seek public input. They would uh, hold public hearings in every county in the state, get input about the communities there and what areas should be kept together. The other thing that this bill does is it sets a clear and prioritized set of rules in terms of how uh, redistricting choices should be made. New Hampshire is not the only state considering this kind of commission. California already has one. Our neighbors, Maine and Vermont, have them. As of right now, the bill is awaiting a signature from the governor. Civics 101 New Hampshire is created by me, Ben Henry, Jackie Helbert, and Daniela Alley. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and we're a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. somebody asks you, where are you from? What do you say? <laughs> I say Connecticut, because if you're, if you're from New Hampshire or Vermont, you're not really from here unless your grandparents are buried in the state, right? 